From KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up on this podcast, for Valentine's week, it's all about love. Flashpoint style. The things about marriage that used to be so important legally don't really matter anymore. Fewer folks are getting married, but there are more relationships than ever. I have patients where, because of these problems, they fight with their spouse every night. It's really about, I want this person to be my partner again. A therapist, divorce lawyer, and sex doctor weigh in. Open marriage? Wait, is that becoming a thing? Been together 16 years, married 11 years, and we've each had a variety of other relationships. A couple on the cutting edge of non-monogamy explains what they do, why, and how the post-nuptial pendulum may be swinging toward new forms of commitment. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast and feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks, all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Since this is Valentine's week, the focus is love. Flashpoint style. According to the Pew Research Center, 88% of Americans say love is the number one reason to get married or to have a long-term commitment. Yet, the share of Americans married is at its lowest rate since 1920. But people are in more, quote, relationships than ever. But what it means is changing how people meet, how they get to know each other, the pace of commitment and more. It's all shifting. And what about sex? The oldest vice of them all. So how do you find love? How do you keep the flames of love burning? We'll talk about it all from dating to divorce and all the deliciousness and dysfunction in between. With me in the studio to discuss the deeds of love is Ben King, a marriage and family therapist with a practice in both Philadelphia and Westchester. We have Dr. Paul Gittens, a sexual medicine specialist and urologist who is the founder of the Philadelphia and New York Centers for Sexual Medicine. And finally, we have Margaret Claw, founding partner of Burner Claw and Watson, our law firm dedicated to the practice of family law. Y'all are like the, the crew that I would gather together to help me navigate the rivers of love. Talk to me a little bit about how you view this love relationship thing from your individual perspective and how expectations have kind of shifted over the past few years. And I'll start with you, Ben. Before marriage served a certain function, a certain tangible function for a person's life, whether that's money, whether that's helping with kids um, and everything like that. But I think now it's it's become a lot more fluid where marriage is really about how we care about someone, how how we want someone to be our partner in life instead of serving other, other ways. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily need marriage to feel cared for, to feel that, that level of support with their partner. But people still like to have sex. They sure do. In my practice at Philadelphia Center for Sexual Medicine in, in New York Center, we see a lot of patients that have sexual dysfunction. We know that patients that have this dysfunction, they may also have some problems with their relationship. We know that the intimacy that a, that a couples, couples have translate over to a better bonding experience that they have outside the bedroom, 
uh, as well as better self-confidence that these two that the couples may have together. From dating to divorce, marriage and everything in between, there's a lot of legal issues that pop up. From where I sit as a divorce lawyer, one thing that always strikes me is how much people want to be married. Mm. And working with people all the time who are devastated that their marriage is not working. And so many of my clients that I represent in divorce cases end up getting remarried. Like I think Americans actually have a very romantic view of marriage. And I look at the same-sex marriage, you know, marriage equality movement. Gay people really wanted to be able to be married. And I I just think it's very interesting because I do work in, you know, divorces internationally, uh, you know, in some of our cases. And I see how marriage is not as emphasized in some other Western countries, Mm. like in Scandinavia. It's just a way less important. And that fascinates me because a lot of the things about marriage that used to be so important legally don't really matter anymore. It doesn't matter if you have children and you're not married. There's no difference in their status legally. And women work. Most A lot of women work. They don't need the financial security. Uh, Ben, I'm asking you, I mean, is do you think that when you have clients come in, you have patients come in to see you, do they have a realistic understanding of what this love thing is? They do have a, a realistic view because when they come in, it's not these overly mm. kind of dramatic ways of looking at love because they're in such a rough place. They're really saying, I just want to get back to a place where we can we can have that love again. It's not saying that I need to get to this place where I feel love every second of every day. And it's really about... I want this person to be my partner again, which I think is a big part of love. I think that in and of itself isn't overly romantic. One of the things that Dr. Gittins, you mentioned earlier, was that having that closeness, that sexual relationship actually strengthens the bond that people have. Are there incompatibilities that exist and do people come to you to kind of help get everything back in line? They do. I see um, a number of patients with um, a lot of dysfunction. So, uh, we have patients where desire is down. We have patients where, for men, where they have erectile dysfunction. For women, where their vaginal health isn't uh, where it should be. And these patients, they internalize that. And they, as I mentioned, they have lower self-esteem, low self-confidence. And that is reflected in their relationship with the other person. I have patients where, because of these problems, they fight with their spouse every night. So there's no intimacy between them because of the fact that they're ashamed and because of the fact that they have this this dysfunction. And that can lead to some problems leading to divorce. Because the other person may see that as this person is not interested in me anymore. Or this person may be seeing someone else. So it's very important that couples, when they feeling or when they have this dysfunction, that they're very honest with each other and they talk about it. And then they uh, receive help. Do people come to you, Margaret, and they say they want to get a divorce? And then it sort of doesn't materialize because they either go to a... A Dr. Gittins or to a, a, a Ben over here and, and fix things? How often does that happen? I would say that it's more common the other way that some people come in because they know they want to be divorced or their spouse has left them and they don't really have any choice in the matter. But we have a lot of clients who come in who are thinking about maybe it might happen. They're not sure if it's a good thing. They're still working on the marriage. They want to understand what would it look like if it happens. And a lot of people have financial fears or they have fears about custody of their children. And they just want information so that they can have a scenario in mind that if we end up separating and or divorcing, here's what my life would be like. But a lot of those people don't come back. I mean, I think there are many people who think about divorce and then I don't necessarily hear from them again, but hopefully they are getting help with therapists and 
Um, Ben's doing a great job. Ben's doing a great job. <laughs> or they're seeing Paul. Um, but many people that I see have already tried counseling more than once. I mean, that again, that sort of goes with the theme of I don't think people take marriage lightly. I think most of the people I see take it seriously and want it to work. My sense is it's often a long process of thinking about it, working on it, thinking about it again, working on it some more. And then, you know, at a certain point, sometimes it's just not going to work out. And most people feel really sad when it doesn't. Back. But not everybody. Some people, <laughs> they some people are really happy. <laughs> they said they have the divorce parties. But I would imagine at least one person is probably um, less happy than the other. At least that's what I see in my practice. You know, on the other side of divorce, I see a lot of patients on the other side of divorce where uh, patients will come in that have sexual dysfunction that are now trying to get back in the game. And those patients also have lower self-esteem and they're, and they're nervous about starting a new relationship because of the fact that they may have problems with the desire or problems with erectile dysfunction or any of the, any of the sexual dysfunction problems that we fix. And that's a good transition to kind of backing things up. How does online dating, and I, I had a chance to take a look at what it's like for people now. They literally swipe left. It's never been like this before. Online dating, for, for a good majority of it, gets sort of a bad rap, whether that's by people who've tried it and it hasn't worked out or whether it's by people who haven't even tried it ever. A lot of the times I hear the sentiment that, oh, it was way different back in my day. We had to go to a bar. We had to go to uh, meet uh, someone in school, and that's how we met them. But I think online dating is a great thing. Probably one of the best things about it is that it's an easy way to funnel down to the people that you really would enjoy to be around. Sure, there's going to be a ton of people who use online dating just for fun or they don't take it seriously. And that's usually where kind of the bad dates and bad experiences come out of. But if you meet someone who's really taking it seriously, there's you'll meet a lot more people like that because just it's a numbers game through online dating versus anywhere that you physically would go to um, yeah. in any and what place. Was a, you have to kiss a lot of frogs to find a prince. That's what yeah. you were mm-hmm. always told. And with that you know, some people call it a, a hookup culture. So do you have clients? I know a lot of times people come to you, um, Paul, for dysfunction, but do you have clients that are just trying to keep up? You know, I have patients that love it and I have patients that hate it. To draw a line, and this is obviously an exaggeration, but most of my male patients, they they really enjoy going online and, you know, being able to select from a number of women or same-sex partners. A lot of my um, my female patients, they find it pretty anxiety-provoking, you know. And so, you know, I think it depends on the, the sex, at least in my practice. I do find that a number of men in my practice who have some issues with sexual dysfunction, they also find it anxiety provoking. And then that then further kind of puts them in a, in a, in a place where their sexual dif- dysfunction gets worse because they realize that, all right, I'm back in the game now. My erections weren't as good. Now I'm having intercourse more often with um, strange women that is actually getting worse. You know, my because exp- of the strangeness. Because of, of the, the strangeness the and the anxiety, because we know that, you know, anxiety can also lead to some issues with adrenaline-mediated erectile dysfunction, which, is, which means that the adrenaline actually is causing some of the dysfunction in some of these men. You know, it really depends on the, um, it really depends on the individual. Um, but I think overall, I think online dating is, is a great way to meet people. 
Uh, I find that there is an awkwardness now where a male or a female may go up to somebody in a bar. Nobody does that anymore. Everybody's yeah, online. I've heard that. Right? And so there's People that don't awkwardness. Want to be they don't want to be bothered. Like, what are you talking? You'd rather you, uh, you, know, you, know, you go online and, and swipe my, uh, my picture as opposed to come up to me and talk to me in a bar. So I think the culture is changing, and uh, I think people have adapted to that. Yeah. And is there a way does the people protect themselves? Do they ever think about that? Like you get people saying, okay, well, you know, pictures are out there now. Everything is online. Um, relationships end because of social media relationships. And, and people can find out information about you so easily through social media. I mean, Facebook is like, you know, the divorce lawyer's best friend. You know, somebody is <laughs> saying they don't have any money to pay their child support and they post their pictures of their, you know, Hawaii vacation. Like uh, people are just so dumb about it. It's kind of incredible um, the information that you can find. And so um, you, all you have to do is find them. All you have to do is look, and a lot of people don't have any privacy settings. <laughs> Everybody, your secret. <laughs> I know. <laughs> this, this dating world, there's a lot of things that people have been concerned about, as well as in marriages. Are people's sort of expectations changing now as far as what a relationship should be, what sex should be, how they should structure things and protect assets and do things that you see is sort of I have different expectations for who you should be for me. I think expectations are, are again, I think they're realistic, but I do think that they're pretty high these days. And I think that it does have some part to do with kind of this online dating culture that's, that's sort of taking over as the main way to meet people. Because you have so many people that you can choose from, you want to choose sort of the cream of the crop. You're not going to choose someone who's... Um, and with social media, everybody's a model. Mm-hmm, Everyone's mm-hmm. a model. <laughs> right, right, because you want to you want to put your your best your best kind of self on the internet, and if that's um, whether it is kind of a, a bad relationship, um, but if yeah. it's someone who looks good on social media, then for some people um, that can be that can be worth it for sometimes um, because again, it's it's giving you this persona that you are a certain person or a certain relationship. And I do want to talk about um, the issue of infidelity, how that impacts people's relationships, because some statistics show that as many as 60 percent, possibly more people in relationships have someone commit an infidelity. Um, And then cheating, of course, this type of cheating breaks up half of all marriages. I would say, and I have been practicing family law for like 30 years, I would say the vast majority of people that I see are not their marriage in divorce, my divorce cases? Their marriages are not ending because of infidelity. They're ending. Really? Because, yes, it's, I would say it's down there on the list because the the biggest things are mental health issues, addiction issues, um, financial issues, and infidelity. It might be, but I think a lot of people in long marriages weather infidelity, and I it's not a, a deal breaker. Um, yes, sometimes somebody falls in love with somebody else. That's then the marriage is over because there's not room for that in the relationship. But I would not say that half of marriages, the people I see are ending because of infidelity. It's, I think it's much more likely that there are other issues that are just making life really impossible. And I mean, addictions and sex addiction is actually one of them. I mean, it's not just alcoholism and drug addiction, but sex addiction, porn addiction. I mean, I hear a lot about that from people. Yeah. So I, I think infidelity in a serious long-term relationship, grown-ups can, can move on past something if it's not a relationship that's supplanting the spouse, mm-hmm. but somebody strays. It happens, and I think people are realistic, especially people that have been married 20 years. 
or 30 years. or 40 or 30 or 40. I had someone yes. tell me it takes a lot to get to 50 Christmases. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You overlooked a lot to get to 50 Christmases. Do people come to you because of addictions at all, Paul? So um, when you're talking about expectations, I think, yeah. you know, expectations are different now. Porn is so available. It's available. You can you can be on in, in Starbucks and on your and on your iPhone and, and you can look at porn. And so with those expectations, we do see <clears throat> a lot of men that have porn-induced erectile dysfunction, right? And so that means that they're, they're measuring themselves up to maybe someone on film. Uh, and they're looking at these men and they're saying, I don't look like that person, so here's my anxiety. So then that can lead to some erectile dysfunction. Um, for women, it, it, you know, I think it's a great time for women now. I think they're going through this new sexual revolution, which is fantastic, I think. They're realizing that, whereas before, they're realizing that they should be enjoying intercourse. It shouldn't be painful. They should want to have, they should want more desire. And, and they're coming to my practice and saying that this is something that I want. For those expectations, I think it's great. You know, I think, it, I think they should be able to enjoy intercourse, whereas before they were just kind of hiding behind the curtain and um, not enjoying it as much as they, as they are now. So expectations are shifting. As we wrap this up, I want to give each of you an opportunity to give me your assessment, just sort of how people can make this whole process of relationships and make things as functional and enjoyable as possible. As cliche as it is, I think it all boils down to communication with each other. It's not just how you talk to each other throughout the day. It's it's being open and being honest with each other. It's being honest about the things that you like about each other. It's being honest about the things that are causing some stress or causing some concerns, causing some resentment because the way that you stay together as a team is to be on the same page. And if you're not on the same page, yeah. you're just going to inherently just continue to fight against each other. Um, whether it's volatile or not, a lot of the couples that I see, the, the fighting is very much avoiding it. And, and that's really uh, as bad as having a lot of volatile fights. So I think I think being able to communicate with each other is, is really the foundation and all the other things really just pile onto that. Being open to the other person changing over time. I mean, I think when I see people who are getting divorced, sometimes what's happened is that someone has had a new new interest, has changed professions, has moved in a different direction, and the other person is unhappy about that in some way. And I think you need to be try to be as flexible as possible and look over the long term about how a relationship's going to play out because it's not going to be static. It's not going to be the same as it was for, you know for for the first two years. And you have to just you know do do your best if you're committed to it. Do your best to try to move together. Yeah, growth. And last word, Paul? Verbal communication is very important as well as physical communication is very important. I love February. I think Valentine's Day is a, is a great day. It's, um, you know, in January, it's the, you know, have a resolution. I think February should be like a sexual kind of resolution kind of month, right? I think it's a great time to spice it up, you know, in the bedroom for for, um, for couples. I think that, you know, on the way, maybe on the way home, if if the sexual relationship is going well, I think they should stop by the store and maybe get, get some accessories for the bedroom, possibly. I also think that 
if a couple is having some problems, I think they should be discussing that. And I think it should be a communication between the two of the, uh, of the people in the relationship saying that this is, this is what's happening in our relationship. We need to get help. We need to either go to a therapist or maybe a, a, a sexual medicine physician like myself. Uh, instead of going to, I don't want to take any business away from <laughs> instead of going to <laughs> our divorce lawyer. So, you know, I think, I think it's a great time to talk about it because, you know, it's, it's all around us. And I, I think the healthier you are, the, the more sexual you are going to be. And so I think the healthier relationship, the better your sex is going to be. To Ben King, to Dr. Paul Gittens, and to Margaret Claw, thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint and talking about love. Next up, they're redefining marriage. Married 11 years and we each had uh, a variety of other relationships. Polyamory, what it is and what it isn't. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Since it's Valentine's week, we're exploring the types of love making national headlines. And one topic is the recent rise in non-monogamous relationships or polyamory. If you've never heard of it, let me explain. It's where individuals who are married or unmarried maintain multiple, many times romantic and intimate relationships at one time with the consent of everyone involved. Philadelphia has a growing community. On Facebook, they're called Polydelphia, with about a 1,000 members. So what is polyamory? How does it work? And why would you do it? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is... Kevin Patterson, author of Love's Not Colorblind, and Rebecca Hiles, who wrote It's Called Polyamory, coming out about your non-monogamous relationships. Thank you both for coming into the KYW studios. And just so everyone knows, you guys have had a relationship for about three years. Yeah, absolutely. And so, Kevin, you're married. I am. Talk about your marriage and then how you were able to. Was this something you agreed on from the gate? My wife and I just sort of stumbled into it like very early in our relationship. We'd only been going out maybe like six or seven months. We just sort of stumbled into an open situation. And when we thought it was going to get weird and awkward, it just sort of didn't. Instead of getting weird, we just started having a lot of really in-depth conversations about what we wanted out of our relationship, how important exclusivity was. It just sort of blossomed out of that. We've been together 16 years, married 11 years, and we've each had uh, a variety of other relationships over the course of that time. You know, some stay, some go, things change, and but we've never really considered going backwards into monogamy. Everything sort of ventures off from this base relationship. It's because you are married here and then there's other relationships there. I mean, I wouldn't say that it extends off of a base relationship. Um, I don't let I don't let my relationship with my wife sort of infringe on any other relationships that I'm in and she won't let me infringe on any other relationships that she's in. It's just that we we do have sort of an, an advanced level of involvement and investment. Like we've got kids together. We've got a house and like health and ins- health insurance together and everything. So I can't like disregard that for my other relationships, but my wife can't tell me what to do in, with other people. And I can't tell her what to do with other people either. Rebecca, you kind of, I guess three years ago, you, you met and how did y'all meet? We met at a conference about uh, poly activism. We were in a panel together and I got, real angry at some people and Kevin decided to 
to say some words to me. <laughs> and so then you connected. Yeah, and yeah. We, we started talking after that, and, and we, we just had a connection. It just sort of went from there. Three years later, you have... Are you do you consider yourselves partners? The thing about uh, the thing about about non-monogamy in general is that uh, sort of every term needs to lead to a conversation. Yeah, I refer to Rebecca as a partner, but does that mean that um, she has the same level of like involvement or investment or you know a- activity as everyone else that I call partner? No, but that's a conversation that me and her have and decide on. And so this is all about consent. It's unique to each individual. Absolutely. Yes. And my relationships are a little bit different and a little bit structured. My partner lives in New York and I spend the majority of my time with him more so that he comes down from New York and he spends all of his time with me. And I actually have more interaction with Kevin's wife than I do with my partner's wife, in spite of the fact that I see my partner more than I see Kevin. So it, it just becomes really, really interesting that Kevin's wife and I, we, we actually spend time together. We you know message each other on Facebook. We hang out. We go shopping occasionally. And so nobody gets upset. Nobody gets jealous or mad or anything that like that. That is a lie. Yeah. That <laughs> That's a big true. myth. Okay, yeah. That is a huge myth. Yeah, the first thing a lot of people say is, I couldn't do that, I get jealous. No, we all get jealous. Everyone gets jealous. It's a human reaction. It's just sort of a matter of what you do with that jealousy, how you manage it, where if I feel jealous of my, you know, of any of my partners and anything else they're doing with anybody else, you know, that says something to me about a fear or insecurity I have. That's mine. I own that. But how can we resolve it? If you think about traditional marriages and people think that if I marry this person, it's the only person I could be with for the rest of my life. And then that's a long time for a lot of people if you're lucky. And a lot of marriages break up because of extramarital relationship. Is this a way to keep a marriage together? No, it's definitely not. And what ends up happening when you do that is it doesn't address the inherent problems in your marriage that you might be having. Adding another person to your marriage, adding you know, opening up your marriage that doesn't address the communication issues that you might be having. You need to sort of go into non-monogamy considering the the possibilities and understanding that there's a lot of communication that needs to go into this. And there's a lot of things that can go wrong. And you need to be prepared for how to have those conversations and how to have those outcomes. And so you need to go into non-monogamy in a lot of ways, feeling really good about the way you communicate with your partner. And also there's the idea that... um if you're sort of experimenting with non-monogamy as a way to, like, uh, save a relationship, you're also dealing with other full-fledged human beings, autonomous human beings. You can't just use people as an experiment as a way to save relationship A. You're going to toss in some new person and, and think that that's going to be okay. Like, people don't want to be used in that way. People aren't the spice to, to flavor up uh, an unsatisfying marriage. And I have to say, like, the one thing that I sort of intrigues me about it is the open communication. That everybody is clear about everybody else. Yes. People still lie. Like, yeah. people are still human. They're, yeah. they're going to mess up. One of the things I think that's that's really useful and that's a really common trait in People who are successful in non-monogamy is that you're able to move past things. You're able to sit down and have conversations about it and able to sort of navigate these a little bit better. And so you and your wife, Kevin, just agreed on this. Currently, how many people would you label as a partner? Um, That's always a really tricky question for me. My wife is with me and she has a boyfriend and that is it. That is sort of the limits of her her emotional uh, bandwidth. I mean, if she, if she decided she wanted to like, take on a, you know some other partner, that's cool too. But that's where she is right now. I date a variety of people. I date a lot. I've got a lot of people in a lot of different levels of involvement and investment. I don't know who I'd call what. 
and that's okay. Like I'm, I'm not checking off tallies. I don't like, keep a running list. So it, it could just be we just friends and we hang out occasionally. If that changes, that's okay too. Where I've had that situation where it's somebody where we're friends and then we did that and that was cool until it wasn't and then we did something else and that was cool too. Do you have to tell your wife about this stuff? I mean, my wife doesn't really keep a lot of checks and balances on me, and really she just ne- doesn't police it. She's like, "Do you?" Yeah, and long, you're like, "Do you?" As long as I'm ha- as long as we're all happy, safe, respectful, and keeping sort of a running dialogue or communication, if anything really changes along those lines of safety, happiness, and respect, then we're fine. And so, Rebecca, are you married, and do you have a similar arrangement? I'm actually divorced. I'm in a polyamorous relationship with my partner, my cat, and my bachelor's degree. But I do have like. Other partners who are, you know, a little bit more casual, who I spend time with when I can, when I fit them in. Kevin sort of fits that category. People who I can see when I can see them, when I have time to fit around the bachelor's degree, to fit around the cat, etc. And it, it, it could fluctuate and change and everybody has their own definition of of what it is. And I, I think that's something that, that I, I say all the time where like my only problem with monogamy is that it ends up being sort of a default setting for, for a lot of people. Many cases, it's not the result of a long conversation about what do we want out of this relationship? What does exclusivity look like? What do we do in the, in the matter of an infidelity? People don't have those conversations. They just say, we're going steady. And that is the last conversation we get until we're engaged, which is the last conversation that, that they have until what day is the wedding? And when it comes to non-monogamy, you kind of have to have a lot of those conversations about what this looks like. You know, I have to have a conversation about what our relationship is. And we might have to have a conversation about what your relationship is with someone else. And how do, how do uh, we navigate those waters between your relationship with me and your relationship with someone else? Or do we even have to, you know, do I... Do I want to hang out with one of your partners or not? Like, I'm a New York Giants fan. Sorry, Philadelphia. But, like, my wife's partner is also a New York Giants fan. So they hang out? Like, we, we hang out and we watch we watch Giants games. Not, in the, not much this season, but we hang out and talk about what Eli Manning is doing. That's sort of a thing that we have to have long conversations about. What level of involvement do I want to have with my wife's partners, with my other partner's partners, and so on? At the Christmas party, does everybody come? Yeah. People do have like their own, you know, their own reactions to this. Some people don't want to be involved with their other partners and you can have, you know, there there's levels of comfort with this. I'm a person who likes to be involved, um, mostly because I'm just uh, Kevin likes to put it aggressively out. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm there with that. Everybody knows that I'm non-monogamous and I don't hide it in any way. So I like to meet my partners partners. I also let them come to me in terms of their level of involvement. And so as we wrap this conversation up, I just, you know, it, it's just interesting to me that people are coming out. I mean, part of it ends up being sort of the Internet. I mean, non-monogamy has been something that's been around for, you know, for centuries. It's harder to build community when you don't know who else is OK with that. And there are people who who come out about their non-monogamy and lose friends and lose family members. You know, my my relationship with my family has been strained for a couple of years since I decided that I wasn't going to be quiet about it. But if I'm online, if I'm on Facebook, if I'm in a forum, if I'm at a meetup group, I have a bunch of people around that I can sort of go to for support. People who have made the same mistakes that I've made or made brand new mistakes that I can learn from where it it doesn't just have to be somebody sees this as a phase and your friends and your family all tell you like, hey, that's a problem. I've got, you know, I haven't seen or hung out with a monogamous person in several months. 
you know, because I've got a community here in, in the local area and a community online that I can, you know, that I can spend most of my time around. And so as we wrap this up, I just want you to each give like a 15 second little soundbite for me. Like, you know, where do you think it's going? I'm not really sure. As of right now, I'm I'm living my life to its very best. And all I can all I can do is ask other people to do the same. Find your honesty, find your truth and, and live within it. Yeah. Right now, I think the only thing we can ask for is just acceptance from the people around us. Um, so I want there to be a space for us to like grow and change and and have like policies put in place for non-monogamous relationships. But right now, I'll just settle for some better representation in media and people to stop looking at us like we've got foreheads. Yeah. And I didn't want to. And just so you know, I tried to keep the conversation clean and didn't go into some of the other issues. But I do think that just the idea of having different types of relationships should people should think about it. And like you said, they shouldn't always, you know, resort to one type because that's the only thing that they've seen. So thank you so much to Kevin Patterson. And thank you so much to Rebecca Hiles for being on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Up next, the Philadelphia group bringing self-love to the masses. Self-care is not selfish, it's sacred. Their unique in-city getaways designed to inspire. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, and to honor our inaugural Valentine's Week love show, the focus for this segment is self-love. And one woman lives by the philosophy that self-care is not selfish, it's sacred. Alana is the founder and creative mind behind Yoga Tree, a live event experience and workshop series that liberates the mind, body, and soul Bringing together communities from youth to elders. Halana, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much, Sherry. So nice to be here. Yes. And I happen to have met you over a year ago now. You're amazing. Thank you. Um, For those of you who have not heard of Halana, she's a yogini. She's a vegan cook, an educator, (laughs) a writer, and much, much more. So let's focus in on Yoga Tree. How did you come up with this concept? So Yoga Tree was really born with a merger of yoga and poetry, right? Yoga Tree is kind of how we came up with the name. And it started off as a workshop series, really just giving artists, activists, and educators an opportunity to kind of unplug from the matrix, if you will, and do something for themselves for once. A lot of times folks like that give so much out to the community. And I really wanted to create a safe space where artists, educators, and activists could actually refill themselves. And so explain how this whole refilling works. <laughs> sure. So uh, self-care is kind of like a new phenomenon, right? It's something that, you know, hashtag self-care Sundays, everybody kind of is on the bandwagon. But what does it really mean? And self-care is really this idea that you put yourself first before others. And that's why we say self-care is not selfish, it's sacred. And that's because we really believe in the philosophy that you can't give something you don't have. And so if you don't take care of yourself first, eventually you'll be giving so much out to your community and to your family and to your work and to what you care about that you'll have nothing left for you. Yeah. And one of the things you've done, you you do these workshops. I also had the pleasure of attending a yes. day long retreat in Overbrook, but you didn't feel like you were in Overbrook. Right, right. Yeah, it's really important to us to create this unique experience that feels like a getaway because really it's all about your mindset. 
right? Everyone doesn't have the finances to schedule a you know, 10-day vacation in Dominican Republic or to travel and backpack across Europe, but everybody needs a break from everything. And so what we really aim to create with our retreat series is an opportunity for the local Yoko to get a chance to unplug from their daily lives and really refill themselves. Yeah. And so talk about this concept of self-care because people don't really take care of themselves almost until they break down. Right. Yeah. It's really an epidemic that's been sweeping our nation. It's this idea that um, the baby boomer generation was really kind of a workhorse generation, right? They came from the Great Depression. They yeah. had to. It was no choice. And so that's kind of how you got your merits is you worked hard and you worked hard for a long time, long hours, little minimal vacations. And so we kind of hit this wall where the children of the baby boomers and the children of them, the millennials, have really been pushing back against this kind of workhorse mentality. The idea that you can work wherever you want, do whatever you want to do and really bust the seams, I guess, in a way around um, around work. And so when you look at how that's affected our families, we have less time at home. People eat less dinners together as a family. We're such a go, go, go society that it's really infiltrated uh, into our lifestyle in a way that's particularly unhealthy. Yeah. And because we're talking all about love relationships in honor of Valentine's Day, yes. when you're empty, it affects your relationships. Absolutely. What we know about holistic health, which is um, kind of this idea that everything is everything, right? Um, your work affects your home life. Your home life affects your personal relationships. Your personal relationships affect your family. Your family affects your aspirations. This idea that you're a whole person, not just one person at work, one person at home, and one person with friends, but Anything going on in one area is going to affect the other. Um, what we know about holistic health is that it's so important to consider the whole person when it comes to self-care. And so if you can find the time to really keep your life in balance, and balance for me is one of my highest ideals, and that's because I know how much when I'm off balance, it affects everything else that I do. You're not originally from Philadelphia, right. but you kind of like took to the city <laughs> and, and you, pretty soon no one will know that. <laughs> I am from Ohio originally. Philadelphia is a city of um, burgeoning entrepreneurs, a lot of opportunity and a lot of folks that are really, you know, curious and open minded. And I think that really does help for the type of work that I do. So tell people how you got into this holistic health. So I originally started off teaching yoga. I've been teaching yoga for about 13 years now. And then it was almost like my life journey was just following the breadcrumbs, right? So yoga led me to Ayurvedic medicine. Ayurvedic medicine led me to aromatherapy. Aromatherapy led me to massage school. Massage school led me to holistic health certification. Holistic health led me uh, into meditation retreats. And then from there, I kind of launched into the full-on wellness experience, everything from acupuncture um, all the way to the workshops that I facilitate now. And so it's really been this amalgamation of uh, nutrition and food and wellness and then veganism. You know, everything's kind of led me along the way. And what I, what I really appreciate about what Yoga Tree is able to do is merge those concepts. Thank you so much, Halana. You're and people, welcome. where can people find all the information about Yoga Tree and sign up and sign up early for the, <laughs> you know, retreats yes. that you do? Because I yes. don't give away all the secrets. You got to come. Just trust me. It's <laughs> worth it. Yes. Uh, you can find us on our website, www.yogitree.com. That's Y-O-G-E-T-R-E-E.com. Well, thank you so much, Halana creative mind behind yoga tree i'm sure uh it's a it's just a beautiful way to show self-care uh, and self-love yeah we all need this it. valentine's we day week need a little love that's it for the flashpoint podcast i hope you enjoyed this exclusive content 
Follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the Radio.com app, iTunes, or whatever platform you use to get your podcast. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Toni Morrison once wrote, love is or it ain't. Then love ain't love at all. Hope you gave a little love this weekend. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.